bed and I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five Welcome to Handbags and Glad Rags, a podcast on the intersections of politics, culture and gender with me, Ellie David, And me, Rian E. Jones. On this episode, we're going to be discussing the politics of country music with our two guests, Elizabeth Newton and Francis Grahl. Elizabeth is a writer and musicologist based in New York. Her recent PhD dissertation analysed the concept of audio quality in pop music and her forthcoming research article looks at musical symbolism in poetry by Melvin Tolson. Her current musical ambition is a attending live concerts again as safely and as soon as possible. Frances is a writer, activist and academic from Forest Gate in London. She's recently completed a PhD on the contemporary European novel of migration. She also works at Kingston University and University of the Arts London as a lecturer in cultural studies. Her research interests include migration, the novel, feminism, politics and popular culture, and she was country when country wasn't cool. Uh, over to you, Ali. Thanks, Rian. So I'm just going to give a little brief introduction to country music as we're understanding it and talking about it today, defining our terms a little bit, although this will probably not cover everything. Um, So country, as we understand it now, has its origins in the folk music of the American South of the early 20th century and developed out of various traditions, including blues, old time, traditional Celtic music and bluegrass. It's associated with a particular expression of working class Southern American experience and the pleasures and pains, mostly the pains of that life, work, poverty, failure, heartbreak. It's a fascinatingly complicated genre of music. It raises all sorts of questions about the politics of class, gender and race in America and elsewhere. And its relationship with right wing politics and the racist aspects of the US South give it some difficult associations. Our edited collection, Under My Thumb, focused on genres that are simultaneously both problematic and subversive, and Elizabeth wrote about country for us. Her chapter deals with the emotional weakness and confusion expressed by male country singers such as Mel Haggard, Hank Williams, Waylon Jennings, and the country rock group Pure Prairie League. She describes, quote, the deflection of effective moral labour onto women in these songs and the shift of weight by a man from himself onto his mother, lover, sister or wife whose job it becomes to right his wrongs. It's certainly true that a big part of country music is the story of male pain and the female emotional labour it generates and how much we sympathise with the men in these accounts will probably vary. There are a huge number of women country singers expressing their own versions of these struggles in clear and powerful detail, sometimes heartbroken, sometimes resigned, sometimes furious. The stories told by singers like Loretta Lynn, Tammy Wynette, and of course Dolly Parton are often in response to the abject treatment by the men in their lives, but also in response to poverty and injustice they contend with themselves. 
Um, country music has become more fashionable than it perhaps once was with the rise of new culture, country, alt country, and the growth in popularity of genres like bluegrass. But Elizabeth and Francis, just to begin, can you briefly talk a bit about your relationship with country music, why it's important to you, um, and anything else about your kind of way into this, this music? Uh, Shall we start with you, Elizabeth? Sure. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, I think for me, I never, when I was younger growing up, I grew up in the in the Pacific Northwest of the US uh, in Boise, Idaho, like in the Rocky Mountains. And I never identified with country at all um, as like a style that I liked or even played. Um, I think country was more kind of like background noise to me. Like all the radio stations were playing country all the time, like artists like Shania Twain and Garth Brooks, uh, Faith Hill, like people like that, that I never, I didn't really dislike it, but I would never choose to listen to it. Um, as a musician, I, in retrospect, I can kind of see that I actually played a lot of country or folk or bluegrass music. Like I studied violin and as like etudes, my teacher would have us play like jigs and reels and genres I would later kind of learn a little bit more about. Um, I think that there was a lot of folk music around like there were these uh, music festivals in the mountains that we would, we would like drive a couple hours and go. There was one called the Yellow Pine Fiddle Festival or Harmonica Festival. And it would just be a lot of folk music on this kind of rickety old stage. And it was kind of like a white trash. Like I would, that's how I would view it now. Like we might call it white trash. Um, like people driving up in pickup trucks, um, kind of lower class, middle class. Um, drinking beer and listening to these really, really good musicians who are actually pretty skilled. Um, I think that it was only when I later moved to the Midwest to Indiana for school for a few years that I kind of started to think more critically about what country was and like what the genre really means. Um, and being in that part of the country that it's like the crossroads of America, like being a uh, kind of adjacent to the South and having friends there that were from the South proper, I guess. Um, it kind of uh, made a lot of the themes of country hit home. And it also made me think about um, the way that I remember my mom when I was a kid would describe country music. She would always call it country and Western. And I was like, oh, this sounds really basic, I guess. But just thinking about um, what it meant to have bluegrass in, in, in the West West as opposed to the Midwest. Um, I think that um, Indiana was an interesting place because uh, it was like, I would hear people address each other with like y'all. <laughs> and I kind of started doing that temporarily for a few years and like worked it into my vernacular. Um, so in the time since I've just been su super fascinated by country because of the stories. And yeah, that's it. Great, thank you. Um, how about you, Francis? Oh, it's a completely different story, actually. Yeah, it's really <laughs> interesting to hear about it from a real American because uh, it's a funny story. Basically, there was a day in 1992 or 1993 when I was ill and I was, I, I don't know what I had, but I was off school for two or three weeks and my grandmother sent me a parcel. And she was very, very into music for someone born in 1928. She liked loads of different genres. She was very educated about music. 
So she sent me a tape that was meant to be some children's stories. I was about nine, I think. And she'd accidentally recorded off it a whole programme about country music from Radio 2. Radio 2 continues, like, I think it's always done Tuesday nights a country night, and it still does to this day. And it was the voters' top 25 country and Western songs, which was completely mysterious. I mean, I think it wasn't a genre that my mother hated, but it was like something that we'd never heard before. We used to listen to Radio 1, like not everyone else. Um, And... It was these 25 tracks of like mostly men, loads of that kind of 80s, 90s stuff, Garth Brooks, people like that. But it was completely fascinating. And the tape, honestly, there were by the by the end of uh, tapes, we had about five copies of it. And we used to listen to it all the time. And it was a surprise to me when, like, I don't know, I was in the car or something with a friend. And my friend was absolutely taken aback by us all listening to this, these, these songs. I remember there was only three women on the whole tape. Um, Loretta Lynn, Tammy Wynette and Billy Joe Spears. No Dolly Parton. Um, but yeah, from that, I think we all, everyone in my family kind of got really interested in country and Western and like Elizabeth really for the stories, you know, uh, Coal Miner's Daughter was on there. Coal Miner's Daughter was like a book, you know, uh, any critique I have of it, it developed much later on. But as a 10-year-old, just was like, whoa, uh, she lives in a cabin in a holler. You know, this is a whole story that's actually quite suitable for a 10-year-old. I remember my grandmother was like, oh, I'll, you know, I'll send you the story uh, again. And I'd never listened to that story, whatever it was, because I had no interest in it. This was like completely uh, change- life-changing for me. It was only when I was grown up and I kind of moved into a flat share that I realised that people just hate it. Like people actively hate it. I was in a breakup and my flatmate, who was a real muso, bit pretentious, uh, while I was getting over this breakup, he was like, I'm going to smash your radio if you listen to any more Willie Nelson. <laughs> and it's like, you know, obviously I just couldn't understand what on earth could be offensive about listening to Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. Like... Yeah, it's really odd. That that story is worthy of a country song in itself, I think. Like the smashing. (laughs) (laughs) Like I'm really interested in the idea of like country and western, and how that's kind of what we. It was commonly once called, but nobody does. Is that still used, country and western? I feel like that's how I first came to to know of it. Like that was the and this would have been sort of late eighties. Um, I guess yeah it was I, I knew I knew of country and western as a thing and then later I think in the 90s when sort of I guess was that new country like Shania Twain uh, Charles Crow and that that kind of um, that kind of era um, was when it started to be known as country rather than country country and western I think that's just my anecdotal uh, observation I mean what is I mean I, I'm, I'm just going to sound completely ignorant probably for most of this this show, but what does what does the Western refer to? Is it is it Western America, like the the frontier, or my? I don't know. My, <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> my understanding. I get the country, but like the the Western just seems. My understanding of it, I was thinking about this today when I was thinking about the kind of origins of country, or the all the different kinds of because there's lots of subsets of country. And I was thinking of Western swing as a like a, one of those subsets, which mm. is kind of the how to describe Western swing. It's kind of got a, that it's that sort of waltzy sort of sound to it. Um, so I was thinking that might have be 
partly the explanation? I don't know. As, as I was thinking about it today, I was thinking about how, in my imagination, the Western was always about the roaming side of country, you know, getting in your truck, six days on the road, you know, this, this idea that you just leave everything and up and go. And I, I was thinking how little of the women's music covers those themes, mm. even though some of it does, obviously. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was going to say it's very, the, the sort of rugged individual uh, mythos, etc., which is always very male, or if, if you do try to engage with it as a woman, then it's sort of fraught with, uh, fraught with difficulties and dangers. The, just listening to both you, both uh, you and Elizabeth, um, both Francis and Elizabeth talking about your way in, to country music it seems in your different ways obviously Elizabeth you're mu obviously much closer to the source uh, than we would have been over here um, but there's there was something kind of otherworldly about it and then our initial and your initial encounters with it with it were kind of by accident almost they weren't it wasn't by design there was some kind of sense of that sort of like incidental um, collision with it somehow and I love I mean the story of the tape is obviously amazing but but Elizabeth also similarly evocative that that idea of being in Indiana at that that sort of juncture of of America yeah yeah I was thinking about what Francis said like about your ex like hating it um I've I still find that to be the case like I think it's it it's like I think it's a trope of like the two types of music that people always say they hate are like country and rap or or something like people with people who are either snobbish or just like ignorant I guess it's like they, they just kind of go there uh if they need to like establish elitism or something but I do find that like even um like where I work at uh it's a grocery store with like a really there's a PA system with kind of like a hot mic. So it's like people are always hopping on the PA and the music is also kind of like a collective effort. So people are always kind of like fighting over what we're playing. And I put some country on the other day, um, not, not feeling that attached to it. I was just like trying to think of something to play. And immediately like sort of like clockwork people, like other, my coworkers or, or shoppers at the store, immediately there's like this like uproar. And um, I don't think that would happen in Idaho, um, definitely. But in Brooklyn, New York, um, there's like a real hostility and maybe that's founded. I mean, like, there, because it, uh, I think the, the racism that's so embedded in country brings up and maybe like triggers people in this really kind of complicated way. Um, so I think there's maybe like people who are re like one woman, uh, came up once the music had started playing. She was like, there's a lot of religious themes in this music that's playing on the speakers right now. And I, I didn't, I just said, oh, like, that's interesting. Um, but to me, it felt like she was, country was like this really useful kind of like palette from which she could draw like whatever she did want to talk about or whatever kind of political point she did want to make. And it, maybe it's like an easy target or it's just like a, a safe, like medium for people to talk about different um, other tastes. Yeah, I uh, I think 
there's like loads and loads of American films and TV shows where they're driving outside of the city in a rural area and someone twiddles the radio and says, all we can get is a country station. And it's like, this is a real sign that we've left the big city behind. But I think it's really crazy, you know, because we, we in Britain, we're allowed to kind of construct our fantasy of America however we like, yeah? And mine is like a completely mad patchwork with, you know, ice cube on one side or whatever. But that fantasy is so limited by people who, who, who have this kind of snobbish thing about country. They happily listen to Simon and Garfunkel or Bob Dylan at his most country or things like that and just make this strange, you know, divide that's not even aesthetic often you know it's 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 literally about what you should listen to and what you shouldn't listen to yeah I guess the the clue is in the name I, I was going to bracket it with um I'm not I've got a whole thing about um the, the snobbishness that attaches to West End musicals often and the particular kind of um class fraction um that that don't like the West End um e even though like I, I, don't, I don't know. My, basically, I think West End musicals are some sort of outpost of the country, of, of the parochial and rural and provincial um, that are in cities. So you get people coming in from the suburbs and the provinces, like some sort of invading force, uh, doing the Trocadero, then going to see Les Mis and then getting the, the bus home, um, which is, I mean, that's, that's they're my people. Um, but I, I find it really interesting to see the, the sort of the snobbishness and the dismissal of that kind of thing. And I think the attitudes towards country music sometimes partake of that as well. Like it's a very, it's a sort of declasse kind of um, kind of music. And it does like, yeah, it does signify that you're, you're somehow going beyond the bones of civilization when you're in, you're in somewhere that you can, you can just your country music playing. Um, so I find that really interesting, but I, I think it very much is something that happens outside America. Cause I guess within the U S there are also, you know, there's, there are valid reasons for feeling um, hostile or unsettled um, in response to um, the signifiers that surround country music and the politics that uh, that it can sometimes draw on. It's I find it difficult to get to to get to grips with as a non-American. Yeah, I think that like sometimes I think there maybe are valid reasons like, but I also think that it's still for people who are responding in that way. Like I also had a coworker who. Um, like I was just chatting with him and he was like, yeah, man, like earlier there was like all this like country playing, like, I don't know who put it on. And then I was like, oh, I, I put it on. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, um, and I, I don't think that like, I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I don't think he was like deeply triggered by some kind of um, negative experience from his past. I think he just, um, it was, it was an easy target. And I think that there's plenty of music that comes on that, could be, we could read like, like music of other genres that would come up that we could easily read like politics. We could read like a, a shoddy politics into that no one would ever comment on mm -hmm. or notice. So I guess I just, I feel surprised that in 2021, um, it kind of apparently across continents retains like these certain attachments and there's, I mean, there's definitely a snobbery, isn't there? And 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 I guess you mentioning the religious element there. Um, do you remember which music it was? What songs in particular that you put on? Or was it just a kind of generic I, compilation? Or I think I'd probably, because I'm sort of obsessed with Miranda Lambert, uh -huh. I had probably started with that, but it might've been like a radio 
station that kind of wandered, but it would have been like really recent pop country uh-huh. that probably didn't have really much of a religious uh, message to it at all. the opposite of that in which I was working in a hackney pub and me and my co-worker used to play country every Thursday when I had my shift and everyone was too scared to challenge us basically because the pub was so trendy that I think it is a just you know there's an aesthetic marker of what's middle brow what's you know not not quite good enough for us what's popular and once it was in this setting in Homerton that we would we would put it over the sound system no one ever thought that it could be anything other than cool uh-huh. Which was ridiculous. I mean, we were playing really trashy things. <laughs> we were we were trying to outdo each other to, to do that. Um I think it's the I think it's the aesthetics that gets people. But I think that's really weird because that uh the aesthetics has been copied so often mm. by people who are like legitimately uh you know people that musos can 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 admire. And the music is just such a, uh, it's so simple, you know, it's such a simple uh, um, vessel for what's actually going on, which is usually the lyrics, you know, not in every case, but mostly the lyrics and the, the singing are so much more important. So people hear the twangy chords and the simple uh, chord structure and think this isn't good enough but I'm, I mistrust that judgment <laughs> mm. well it's so complex and and I think it seems to me it's a very sincere genre like there's a lot mm. you know the, the, and perhaps some of the religious elements even though you say it, that's being used as a euphemism but there is some there's there is quite a lot of of God happening in you know various bits of country music but also that very raw visceral heartbreak that you get in a lot of it which which is very powerful i think there's no irony no hardly any irony at all ever i was reading a paper about stand by your man which i could talk about all night as i told you (laughs) and it was by a male writer who was trying to reclaim some kind of feminism for the song and he suggested it was ironic but it's not ironic 
that's I, I reclaim a different kind of feminism for this song, but it's not ironic. No, it's, it's completely straight. What they're saying is is what they want you to hear. Absolutely. Well, with that in mind, should we talk about the feminist or or not the feminist aspects or not not or very unfeminist aspects of country music, um, and think about how they're in dialogue with some of the more problematic aspects of it. So the things that you discuss in your uh, essay, Elizabeth, about the emotional labour demanded of women in, in the, these male stories of pain, but also the women who sing about their own experiences of, of those situations. Uh, what, where does the, the feminism come from? Francis, why don't you start us off with your, whatever it was that you were thinking about, Stand By Your Man or any other yeah, well, I could start with Stand By Your Man. In fact, you know, how, how long have you got? So uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I was I was just reading this anecdote about Hillary Clinton and Stand By Your Man today. And it was really amazing because Hillary Clinton, as part of supporting her husband through his uh, 1992 election, it's 1992? anyway, his, ele- his first election campaign, um, said this quote, um, which was something like, I'm not going to be some little woman just sitting around standing by her man like Tammy Wynette. Yeah, she made it very explicit. And of course, you know, then you go on to the late 90s and what Hillary Clinton was faced with. Suddenly there's a much more complicated set of choices, isn't there? Yeah, obviously she could have walked away from uh, Bill Clinton after the Monica Lewinsky scandal, but she didn't. Yeah, and there's lots of valid reasons for why she didn't, you know, there's lots of valid reasons about actually why standing by your man can be tactical, can be pragmatic, can be what's good for you and what's good for you, uh, you know, for your own personal fulfillment and achievement. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of criticism of Hillary Clinton, but not about that particular thing. Yeah. Because, she thought in the early 90s that those were the options that you could be uh, um, a liberated, autonomous human being in your own right while on your husband's election campaign and, and state that and that the opposite was what Tammy Wynette did. But Tammy Wynette's divorced four times, you know, she wasn't completely walk, a walkover. Um, and that those that that binary is complete nonsense. Yeah, women are working in it, it within a framework that is always going to be a bit shit for us. And yeah. so, standing by your man is not about romance. It's not about love, and it's not about success for us. It's about we have to recognise that the decisions put before us are are, are not uh, uh, completely free. Yeah, they're limited. And so just on that song as well, you know, the, 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 the best part of it for me is the completely dismissive end of the verse. After all, he's just a man. Yeah. And within that, there's so many potentials for us to be women in the ways in which we're trying to be women, you know, with, you know, those of us who sleep with men and marry men are slightly held back by that. And, you know, we're going to be held by that back by that, whether we divorce them or whether we don't divorce them. But after all, that's all he is. He's just a man. That's such a brilliant reading of that. Mm. And like that particular line is so 
powerful. But that song in particular, I, I've always thought it's an absolutely extraordinary song. The idea that you could read that as this really uncomplicated, romantic song about sticking by your man through thick and thin. It's, and and I, I think so much of that is particularly to do with Tammy's voice, which is just so expressive. And you get these layers of, of what that, that means to stand by your man. You hear in her voice, the, the stories that she could tell about what it means to stand by her man, the pain and the struggle and the, and the pleasures as well. It, it's just an incredibly rich song mm. in so many ways, I think, and says so much about the particular qualities of, of women country singers, I think. Yeah, it makes me, um, so on the stand by your man topic, it like maybe as a pivot, I'm thinking of, um, the Simpsons, like the TV show, you know, yeah, you know. <laughs> um, there's an episode with the like the country star singer Lurleen Lumpkin, yes, like, yes, who's kind of like the and she she writes a song called "Stand by Your Manager" because Homer is her manager for the episode, and um, she's I read her as like a mashup of all of these different women in country um, who are writing this kind of edge that I think Francis is speaking to where they're trying to inhabit these oppressive structures in some kind of way that is re reclaiming femininity in some way or, or, or using the system to their advantage. And um, I think that she, I think it's um, that her, her character is a reference to Stand By Your Man and also like to, I'm thinking about the story of Dolly Parton and, um, and her, long time like collaboration with Porter Wagner where um, they were, they collaborated like uh, Wagner kind of like discovered her and helped build her fame. And then eventually they parted ways after I think about like seven years of intense collaboration leading to all of these legal disputes over the rights to the songs. And so on one hand, like, I think it's, um, it, it's like in the, this story is in the category of the story, like of um, these other kind of country divorces um, where the woman is put in this uncomfortable position. And I think we, as like the readers of the story are also in this uncomfortable position where we're trying to grant agency to the women in a way that maybe second wave feminism or even third wave feminism like couldn't do. Uh, or wasn't wasn't really doing. Um, so I think with Dolly Parton, what struck me when I learned about this story with Porter Wagner is I was like, oh, I've never heard of Porter Wagner. And apparently he was like a country star and had like 81 hits in the late 50s or early 60s or something. And he was known for wearing these rhinestone suits, but I had never heard of him. I only know about Dolly and about her, this institution of philanthropy that she runs and all, all of this and that. And so on the one hand, like, I'm inclined, I feel like there's, I'm going through a few layers here, I guess, where like on the one hand, I'm inclined to say, well, Dolly all, all obviously won. Um, like she's, she's the known figure, she's celebrated, she's widely admired as this kind of rich feminist model. But I do think that there is this aspect that people, that we shouldn't ignore in, her, in that story, where I think the story that often gets told, like I've if you listen to interviews with her or you read like web accounts 
of her interactions with Porter Wagner, people often emphasize, like the end of the story in a lot of these um, tellings is like, after all of these legal disputes, Dolly Parton graciously ended up granting Porter Wagner the rights back to his songs so that his children, for example, could enjoy those rights. And so I think that is exactly the move that kind of troubles me or gives me pause, which is um, that in the end, it was kind of Dolly's responsibility to tidy up that entire like years long mess. And she, although she's celebrated for it, it's not like she's an object of, I mean, maybe people joke about her, but in general, I think like most of us are like, oh yeah, Dolly's really cool. We, you know, mad respect to Dolly for kind of handling her business and all of this and that, but it's only because she had to do so many like gymnastics in order to make it work out that that was the case. Yes. So I don't know what to make of that. It's complex, isn't it? And I, I think there's many um, art forms, I guess, or um, many political tendencies as well in which women are celebrated for being strong, for being competent, for being resourceful. Um, and they are strong, competent and resourceful, but there are many situations in which they wouldn't have had to be strong, competent and resourceful if they weren't faced with the limits of patriarchal society. So, yeah, I, I, I think Dolly's an excellent example of that. I think many women in country are like they, they, sort of, they, they are cleaning up in their songs and sometimes in their real lives, they're cleaning up a mess that's not of their own making. Um, and they, they are correctly celebrated for that. But there's a lot of messier stuff behind that that is never really um is never really discussed partly because it's not um it doesn't make for a neat story and I agree with what we were saying earlier that country music is so much about storytelling and I, I love that aspect of it I think it's very much um almost like a kind of oral history like there's, there's a lot of sort of cultural preservation in a lot of songs even if you're sort of describing um having grown up in a in a dirt cabin or the sort of the dresses that your your mother sewed so you could uh you could wear it to school and that, that kind of thing. There's a, there's a lot of, um, of history there and that's one way in which it's, it's passed down. People don't really write academic textbooks on Appalachian culture, but there are these, these songs and these traditions that come, um, that come out of it. Um, I was just, in terms of the politics of country, I, I, I feel we should surely mention Dolly's um, Marxist feminist masterpiece, Nine to Five, um, which is just, I mean, from the, from the film and the, the story behind it and, and just the song itself, which I, I've always thought is absolutely phenomenal. Um, it's a rich man's game, no matter what they call it. And you spend your life putting money in his wallet. I mean, you've got the communist manifesto in a nutshell there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I was lucky enough to see Dolly Parton at the O2 and uh, everyone sang along. It's a Friday night. Can you can imagine we'd literally come from work and the whole stadium was full of people singing along. And at the end, I won't do the accent, but at the end, Dolly Parton, again, graciously, gracious is a very important word when it comes to the, the, the ladies of country, said, how did you all know the words to my little old song? <laughs> I mean, I was in tears. I was thinking, this is, this is, here I am surrounded with my people, you know, 60,000 kind of country, country fans, and queer people mm. all together, bawling out what we've just felt at work all week. Um, 
She's extraordinary, isn't she? I mean, so uh, this is a word I've, I'm, I'm going to use. I'm going. I've already used. I'm, I'm mindful in reference to Patsy Klein, but the way that Dolly manages to do that, because I've seen a video, I've seen the, the sort of film of. I don't know if that it, it was that concert in particular, but it was definitely a concert at the O2, and the way that she manages to turn this enormous arena concert into this intimate kind of encounter between her fans and herself. She's an absolute genius when it comes to that sort of thing, the way that she performs and her stage presence. Um, but yeah, no doubt, all of that stuff. And if you, you know, if you read her autobiography and all of the stories that she tells, there's been a phenomenal amount of struggle in Dolly's life to get mm. to, to where she is. And some of that is to do with, yeah, like people like Porter Wagner and the, the forces of patriarchal music industry but also the poverty and you know where she where she grew up the, 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 and, and 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 that brings that that brings in another of the brilliant aspects of country music in that that kind of detail that you get about those that those kinds of communities and those experiences in this very rich um evocative way and I guess something like nine to five comes out of that, you know, that sort of those, those struggles. I think, I mean, Francis touched on it very briefly, but like the the camp or the, the queer aspects to Dolly, especially and, and country more broadly is really interesting. I think like there's been, I, I don't know a great deal about it, but I, I keep encountering um, like covers of uh, Dolly's song Jolene, um, some of which are done by women in a, from, from a sort of queer angle, like Jolene is actually the object of desire in the song rather than the man that she's that she's stealing. And I've um, also heard like male covers of Jolene, um, which don't change the genders round at all. So I think it is such a great, and partly because it's, it's a very simple song, a simple narrative. So it does lend itself to um, these different perspectives and these angles. But um, yeah, I, I find the fact that Dolly is, is a queer icon to be really interesting as well. I was going to say on the on the nine to five piece. I think she and and this maybe relates to the queer the queerness of her as well. Like she has this very masterful way. I think of telling like kind of controlling her own narrative because she's so engaging to just to listen to her speak. She's so engaging. It's just delightful to me, like to my ear. And um, like interviewers are always kind of like, just like so charmed by her. And and she really like kind of runs the show like in any kind of press context. And I think that like the, her, one way I think she does that is like it, when she's discussing her current wealth, because it really is this kind of rags to riches tale where she's, telling stories about how when she was on the road, like when she was just starting out as a young, as a young woman, like washing her hair in cold water in the rest stops on the highway, like this really like kind of rugged, difficult, um, pulling herself up by her bootstraps tail. And then today she's um, donating millions of dollars to the Moderna vaccine. And um, I think that like one thing she said, I. I think I wrote it down here. Um, she says, I had to get rich in order to sing like I was poor again. And she's speaking about that, like in context of the idea that rich people can't sing the blues. And then she's like, I disagree with that entirely. I think that 
that rich people can sing the blues. And so I think that like, she's very smart in that she's kind of guarding herself, like given that she has this, like, um, like following nine to five, um, she has this way of guarding herself against critique of being part of the 1% because she's um and this I think goes back to Francis's point earlier about how like uh she's really working with the sincerity and that like at every level she's kind of covering all of her bases um because she's like yeah I admit it I am really rich um and that's exactly why I can sing about being poor and I like to me I think that I feel a little bit, I love Dolly. I think she's amazing. Um, I feel a little bit like, um, I do feel kind of persuaded by certain critiques of her from the left that um, like, there's this really interesting article by um, her name's, Je the writer's name is Jessica Wilkerson, where she's kind of doing a deep dive on Dolly World, the theme park that Dolly opened in, I think 1986. And she's looking at the labor practices of Dolly World and saying, oh, the workers are mostly seasonal and part, like 75% of them I think are seasonal and part-time and the starting wage is only nine or $10 an hour. And I think that for me, that poses a real conflict because on the one hand, I'm like, Dolly's so amazing. How much more can we ask of her? Like she has overcome so much, like um, poverty, the, the, all of these oppressive gender roles that she's been occupying in these kind of queer ways. And yet um, from like, from the left, I think there's still room to maybe to critique it um, in some way. For sure, for sure. I mean, I think she's my favorite capitalist, really. You know, I think that, that I, I would say that, that this is this is what the model capitalist would do if that's what we wanted, you know. <laughs> they they put money into the vaccine, they'd give money to the, na the national disasters, they would uh, teach children how to read, all of which she does. And you know, you set her alongside a load of other bastards. She she looks pretty great, uh, but that's that's the system in which she works, right? Mm, I'm struggling to adapt. You know, her maxim: um, it takes a lot of money to look this cheap. I'm struggling to adapt it to like it takes a lot of capitalism to be this communist or something. I'm sure I'm sure that's this that's that's possible. Um, yeah, I recognise her flaws. I mean, particularly um, I mean, nine to five being such a magnificent song. She's she did. I can't remember when this was. But she sort of did a, a spin off of it, which was called Five to Nine, which was about having a side hustle and sort of gig economies. And I mean that 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 hurt a bit, you know. <laughs> but, but I still think she's great. Oh yeah. One of the very few things that I've got really to, to contribute to discussions on country is um, how much I love um, the the Chicks song, Goodbye Earl, um, the Dixie Chicks as as was. Um, and it's basically, again, a really straightforward narrative. There is absolutely no irony in it. It's about a woman who makes a bad marriage and her best friend um, gives up her high-powered job in the city to come back and help her murder her abusive husband and um, and cover up his murder and they get away with it and live happily ever after. Uh, mostly due to the incompetence of um, the police and the support of the community, um, which again, I think would make a marvelous novel. Um, but there it is in um, in three minutes. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of my absolute favorite um, country songs. I'll try and put a clip of it in 
um, to this episode. Um, I think that we were also going to discuss is um, again I, I don't know if people remember this but at the time of the Gulf War um, the chicks or the Dixie chicks as they were then um, basically came out with with anti-war sentiments and anti-Bush sentiments and received a massive um, backlash from their own audience like as well as um, from right-wing um media and politics generally. So yeah, we, we were thinking, does does that, even though we've been talking about how it's possible to have, have um, subversion and progressive stuff within country, um, is there a political limitation to it in the in the mainstream? I think that was something we we wondered. I mean, I think this is really, it's, gender is really important here, isn't it? Mm-hmm. This was actually in London, the Shepherd's Bush, they did this. Oh. Uh, and, um, it was a time when everyone was criticizing, well, not everyone, but you know, it felt like everyone was criticizing the Iraq mm-hmm. war. Um, Chris Christopherson wrote an entire album criticizing the Iraq war. Maha Haggard had a song against it, even though he had a pro-Vietnam song. Uh, you know, this was, the, 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 these people were punished because they were women, I mm. think really. And I, I, I keep thinking about this word you used, Elizabeth Gracious, that, all these things that these women are doing through the generations to be to be uh, to to play around with what with with realism and to play around with hardship and to talk about what what has really happened. Women within country continue to this day to have this great pressure on them to be ladylike, okay, and to be ladylike in the, the really problematic context of the the Southern Belle, you know, the 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 the. the uh, white lady who's always gracious you know you can have massive knockers but you have to have a certain way of wearing them you know you you can have lots of big blonde hair but you have to be polite to everyone and uh of course they were forced into an apology and their careers really like got smashed by them Mm. i guess one thing we have to remember there is like who's buying country is not just me and elizabeth is it it's like lots of people who are 
deeply pro-America through lots of strange things. People who don't want women to come out of the box. And uh, that, that's, that's led to lots of clever ways of, of, of being subversive, I think. But also that remains as like a, a huge oppressive thing. There's like a, um, a TV series from about 10 years ago called Nashville which follows a young kind of Dixie Chicks, kind of uh, um, Taylor Swifty blonde, you know, 21 year old who's, who's a, a huge country pop star and an older queen of country music woman who are forced into an uneasy collaboration against both of their wills because that's what the market demands. And I think through that, even though it's not the greatest series ever made, there's definitely this theme throughout of remain gracious, remain ladylike. Your, your, your uh, public persona is hugely gendered and hugely controlled. Mm. And that's the only way that you can record in this environment. And, you know, people like Taylor Swift left partly for those reasons, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think I was, I was re refreshing my memory of that whole... Um, story the Dixie Chicks versus Bush story today and they apologized and then they rescinded their apology like mm. relatively recently but also I think the Dixie Chicks themselves like embody this this quite interesting conversation that country music is kind of a certain type of country artist is having with itself because obviously they've just changed their names to the Chicks or relatively recent I don't know in the last couple of years which speaks to an awareness and then and a willingness to kind of own the problematic associations of you mm -hmm. know where they come from and the, and the music's origins um and they're actually kind of doing that and have those things and having those conversations out in the open you know as as part of their as uh, as part of their act which is quite interesting and i don't know whether they've just made the decision to, I, I, I'm not really up to date with how they position themselves at the moment. I don't know if any of you guys mm. are, whether they've just said, they've just kind of given up on main, on being accepted by mainstream country or not. I'm not sure. I've, I've lost track a little bit of, of the chicks, or the artists formerly known as the Dixie Chicks. <laughs> I think that like what this, the, the topic though makes me, and um, Francis, what you said about like Merle Haggard varying, like having varying takes on the war kind of like, it makes me think of um, back to this idea of irony and a, a kind of a lack of irony. I feel like maybe Merle Haggard or my fave, my current fave Miranda Lambert, I feel like they do, there is a little bit of I irony to be read into, th those are the two people that are coming to mind in that like they, it's it's tricky because I think unlike Dolly, who is kind of like running this really tight ship where she's like, I'm covering all my bases. I am what I say I am. That's what allows me to be like the favorite capitalist. I think that um, like Merle Haggard and Miranda Lambert both have this kind of more like ambiguous persona that, um, like I'm thinking of some of Miranda Lambert's songs that can be read on multiple levels as like, at least like within a US context with our stupid two party <laughs> situation. Like it's basically like you could, they could, the 
symbolism of the song could be tipped left or it could be tipped to the right, depending how you wanted to hear it and play it. And so it's obviously to her advantage, like when she's singing about prison, like a really hot topic right now in the US talking about prison abolition and police violence, like she, her husband, I believe is a, a, an NYPD officer. I think I actually, I don't know much about like the, the backstory, but like to a lot of um, people on the left, that's like super problematic these days. And I think that um, she's like, if Dolly's songs are like exactly as smart as she is, or maybe Dolly's kind of like smarter than her songs, I think with Miranda Lambert, it's almost like her songs are smarter than she is. And there's a lot of room for people, I think, to read kind of um, subversive takes into her, which I think is what happens with Merle Haggard. Um, like, I know that the artist like, like Killer Mike is really into Merle Haggard, which is surprising because it's like a weird kind of juxtaposition of aesthetics or something. Um, but the fact that these artists are so easily reclaimed I think is, um, it's part of their their act. But I think it's also, gen to me, it's genuinely powerful and it's genuinely like maybe liberatory or to be dramatic about it. Yeah, definitely the, the Mel Haggard song, Oki from Muskogee, we don't burn our draft cards, we don't, we don't smoke grass. It's all about being an American through righteous uh, living, through clean living. Uh, we're not, we don't wear sandals and so on. Um, and Mel Haggard was actually asked about this song repeatedly because this song is so much. I mean, seriously, uh, it's, it's a representation of America, which the hippies and the, the, the druggies and the, uh, the urban types are just completely wrong. And in Muskogee, we know how to live. He's actually just like bounced back and forwards about what that song means over and over again. And he just changes his tune according to his audience, you know. To some people, he says, oh, no, it's a joke. It's a big joke. And to some people, he says, no, no, I am proud to be a, a, an Oki from Muskogee. This song is completely straight. And it's not quite irony, is it? It's, 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 it's like what you said, maybe the song is cleverer than he is. Maybe that joke about America uh, can be read straight and can be read as a joke. And both, we could just accept both. And Merle Haggard doesn't need to uh, provide us with a final conclusive definition of what's going on in Oki from Muskogee. You know, that there's a lot going on in that song. But again, mm. that's so gendered, isn't it? Because, because uh, there's a shape-shifting that appears to be open to Merle Haggard there that isn't open to Dolly Parton, for example, who manages her her reputation and how she positions herself incredibly carefully and one sometimes gets the sense although perhaps this is my love for Dolly overwhelming my, you know the facts but one sometimes gets the sense that perhaps she would be a little bit more radical or a little bit more political if she could but she's she positions her good deeds in such a sort of careful carefully managed way and in a way that fit in with this very carefully managed brand, whereas Mel Haggard can be a bit more like, yeah, sometimes it means this, sometimes it means that. Mm. Um, and again, like that's so gendered to your point, back to your point about the, the chicks, Francie, the way that they got punished. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, that's one of the things where the real charm of the storytelling comes out is that uh, the realism can always be read straight because it's really real you know mm -hmm. even though these people are very very rich they're very successful they're very very famous within a country 
when they talk about growing up with no shoes, uh, having coats made out of rags, uh, finding themselves divorced in, in uh, upstairs apartments and so on, this is not just realism, it's that it's their own truth and it's a truth that other people identify with. Um, and it's, it, it, I guess it uh, circumvents the need to have a take. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that, that's what the realism does. It doesn't, it, you don't need to have a take because it's, it's, it, it just happened, you know. Can I like I, that a lot. Um, can I go back to something that we were talking a bit about earlier and to kind of bring some of your, both of your ideas in conversation with each other a little bit. Um, Francis, what you were saying a little bit when it comes to, to Stand By Your Man and what Tammy, the story that Tammy is telling in that song, but also Elizabeth, the stuff that you wrote about in your chapter for Under My Thumb about the sort of the moral effective labour that, that um, that men demand of women or and describe you know that they demand of women in their songs um, could you talk a little bit about that maybe and kind of summarize sort of what it is that you kind of have picked up on in those in those kinds of songs yeah I think um, so I describe a general trope or like maybe a tendency I guess um, like, or like an attitude where the 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 plot of the song or the the emotion in the song is a case where it ends up that the woman I don't want to say tricked but I guess maybe like for shorthand I'll just like the woman is like tricked into <laughs> doing the work and then in that essay I kind of I feel like I kind of it was kind of a cop-out at the end I feel a few years out from it <laughs> kind of saying like oh but we love him anyway and um that's we part of life or... <laughs> that, that was the theme of the book wasn't it we love them anyway <laughs> loads of the country I love is like super heterosexual super to do with a huge gulf between men and women and a huge gulf between men and women's experiences, even within happy love songs, even within the duets, you know, think about Jackson by uh, um, June Carter Cash and Johnny, Johnny Cash, you know, there's this, there's this idea, I have my experience and you have your experience. We, we can't ever make them meet and they're completely different. And I could quote my sister here who said, you know, the, that within Tammy Wynette and George Jones, Tammy Wynette's problem is that she needs a man, but George Jones's problem is that he is a man, you know, that there's this crisis of masculinity that's, that's, that's kind of, especially George Jones, who, you know, his whole life is a kind of crisis of masculinity in, in some ways, you know, that's the, the, the bottle and the need to do right by his woman and just being alive, completely overwhelming. And I, I read that as being to do with masculinity and how toxic it is for all men, uh, especially in this context for, for, for kind of men working within a, a, a heteronormative parameter. Mm, you know? mm, mm. And I think, yeah, that, that complete division, that there's no, there's no way to, to meet those two experiences is really key. Yeah, and the women are so good at calling out the hypocrisy as well. Like um, I find in certain songs, um, 
I'm thinking of, uh, it, it wasn't God who made Honky Tonk Angels and also Don't Come, Don't Come Home. Is and that Don't Come Home with Linking with Loving on Your Mind? Yeah. <laughs> like, there's just a, even though they do kind of put up with it, these women are always, well, not always, but often calling it out in these quiet. They're calling it out, but there's a whole, there's a whole like uh, subset of songs where you call out the other woman. Yeah, mm. uh, Jolene and uh, Loretta Lynn's Fist City and things like that. They're basically saying, he's my man and I'm going to defend him. Okay, he's a piece of shit, but that's not the point. I'm going to I'm going to hold on to this relationship. I'm going to fight you for it, you know, which is, I mean, incredibly against what we usually think of within our feminist values. But nonetheless, it's a kind of truth telling that, that that is interesting to think about, isn't it? You know? <laughs> Definitely. Like the truth telling in itself is feminist, maybe. Or yeah, I mean that's that's yeah. that's my uh, the hill that I'll die on. <laughs> uh, truth telling as feminist feels like it might be a good point to wind up the discussion. <laughs> um, unless anybody's got anything else they want to add to 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 the um, to the discussion. Now, I've covered everything except something I forgot to say about Goodbye Earl, which is that a song about uh, the violent death of a man um, at the hands of his wife is just really refreshing and a useful corrective to like the standard murder ballads um, or Nick Cave songs or even Johnny Cash with the Delia's Gone. Um, though I think Delia does come back to haunt the, the narrator in that song, so she does have a bit of agency. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm, I get so sick of songs by men in which the death of a woman is like romanticised, eroticised or played for laughs. So, um, yeah, I think it's I think it's good to have a corrective to that. Yeah, definitely. Great. Well, thank you, Francis and Elizabeth, for joining us. Thanks for inviting us. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to be a woman Giving all your love to just one man You have bad times And you have good times Doing things that you don't understand But if you love him You'll forgive him Even though he's hard to understand Oh, and lonely.